Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Kelsey O'Gorman. Kelsey is an associate in Foley's Milwaukee office focused on employee benefits and executive compensation matters. This podcast, like many, started off with an email of me saying, hey, Kelsey, do you want to be on the show? And her saying, sure, although I don't know if my path is that interesting. Fortunately, I was able to twist her arm to get her on, and I'm so happy that I did because this episode is just jam-packed with fantastic advice. But before we get there, I get Kelsey to share at least what she thinks is her not-so-interesting path to law, which started with her going to Marquette University for college and then the University of Wisconsin for law school. And Kelsey reflects on how, as a finance and economics major, it was tough for her adjusting to law school, but this is where the fantastic advice starts. She talks about how she would visit professors' office hours, and I hope for the law students listening that encourages you to do the same. We then transition to her joining Foley. She mentions it was love at first sight, and she gives some just wonderful advice about being a junior associate and how to build up your skills, particularly when you're in a small practice group. Because the thing about employee benefits and executive comp is it's a very important practice that most firms have. They tend not to be that large, which means often many of us don't really know what they do. And that is another thing that is my favorite part of this podcast is I get her to go into detail about what it means to be a benefits attorney. What does it mean to be an ERISA lawyer, which I just think is so valuable for all of us. But once again, especially for the law students who otherwise may not be exposed to this practice area. But As I mentioned, this podcast is jam-packed. I am so happy that I was able to get Kelsey on the show to reflect on her path, to impart some wonderful advice, and I really hope you enjoy the conversation. Kelsey, welcome to the show. We're going to dive right in, and I'm going to ask that you give your professional intro. Great. Thanks for having me. So my name is Kelsey O'Gorman, and I am going into my fifth year here at Foley. I came right through from law school and um, started my career here. And I'm in our employee benefits and executive compensation group, which is a subgroup in our tax department, which is a subgroup of our business law department. And we are going to talk more about that in a little bit. But first, let's start at the beginning with you. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I don't have that interesting of a backstory. I always feel slightly embarrassed when I'm talking to people because I am born and raised in Wisconsin. Um, I grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee, Brookfield, if anyone's from the area. And then I went to college in Milwaukee at Marquette University. And then I went um, straight after college. I went to law school at UW-Madison. So I am born and raised in Wisconsin, born and bred here, but I love it. My husband's also from here. We never want to leave. We are Midwest people at heart. So, Well, in that case, I guess we'll just you know stop the show right here. No, just <laughs> kidding. And the best part is, particularly for uh, those of us from the firm from Wisconsin or in the Milwaukee office, It's particularly interesting to me because that's where I grew up. So maybe somebody else would be like, oh, that's boring. I don't have questions. I have questions, Kelsey. 
All right. So you grew up in the Milwaukee suburbs, Brookfield, generally familiar. I grew up in Glendale. Okay. And so let's take it back. I'm trying to decide. I don't know if I want to jump to the like, when did you know you were going to be a lawyer? But let's get really broadly. So what what kind of kid were you? What were you doing in Brookfield? And I don't know, middle school, high school, what was life like? Sure. Um, well, I was always a little bit of a nerd. I always say I was always had my nose in a book growing up. I loved school, loved school. So I was definitely a little bit of a teacher's pet. And actually growing up, I would say, you know, a lot of kids, they wanted to be a ballerina or like uh, something, you know, really cool like that. I always wanted to be a doctor, which I guess is kind of cool. But um, I loved science. I loved math. And I loved, loved school. But (laughs) I like the self-described teacher's pet. I wouldn't go so far as to say that's how I was. But you saying that is bringing back some memories, which is what happens when I do these shows. These are just all about Alexis, like unpacking (laughs) her life. But I was an old, or I am an only child. Okay. So for me, schools were where my friends were, <laughs> and school was so much more interesting to me than being at home. And I never quite could relate to the kids who didn't like school, which I say hesitantly now because it just seems like a really uncool thing. <laughs> <to admit. laughs> No, I feel the same way. So I have two younger brothers and, you know, going through, we all went through the Brookfield school system and they always would get mad at me because they'd be like, uh, teachers are asking like, oh, you know, am I going to be, you know, just like Kelsey? And they're like, no, totally different animal. Um, She, you know, loves reading, loved school. They were more sports fanatics. So they were always like so mad that I set expectations so high, but I did. I loved school. So what can I say? That's always fun. I've, I'm fascinated by that for people who have siblings, which is, I'd say most people. I think the only child thing is still not as common. And I see that with my boys. So my kids are seven and nine and they are very different. And my husband's one of four. But so there is that, this, the, the teachers know the siblings and you set the bar high for yours. And so when you say you really love science and you thought you wanted to be a doctor. So when, when did that seed, when was that planted? So when was that where you thought that was your path? Yeah. So I think growing up, my mom was a nurse and um, she was like a working mom when I was younger. And so after school, a lot of the time she would have to like bring us to like the clinic and we would sit, um, you know, kind of in the lobby, like while she worked and talk to the other nurses. And I just always thought that like working in a clinic, working in a hospital, it seemed so cool. They were just helping people and it was always busy. And so I, I really thought that that's what I wanted to do. So let's fast forward then. Yeah. Say, it's, say it's high school ish. Yep. Is it I'm going to head to college and focus on pre-med or what what was your thought process when it came to going to college? Yep. So you would think that having a mom as a nurse and being that interested in being a doctor, I would have figured this out earlier, but um, actually a field trip in eighth grade, they took like 20 kids who are interested in potentially going to medical school, you know, someday down the road. Um, And we went to the medical college and we got to do like a bunch of really cool things that like med students would get to do. And there was this one experiment that we had to do with blood. And I like almost fainted on the spot. I had to leave the room. I was like crying. My teacher was like consoling me. And I was like crushed because I thought I'm going to be a doctor. But doctors obviously have to make it through medical school where blood's a thing. So I was really, really crushed. And I think then in high school, I started exploring what else could I do if I love, you know, education. I knew I wanted to go to school for like a long time. I knew I wanted to work with really smart people and also help people, you know, maybe in a different way than doctors do. And so that's when I started getting interested in the law and potentially going to law school. 
I just have to reflect on that for a moment because life is so funny where you're like, I know what I want to do. I want to do X. And then one particular program or field trip or whatever you'd want to call this experience (laughs) changes everything where you're like, okay, maybe not. Maybe I need an alternative. (laughs) Yes, it was definitely a a come to Jesus moment for me where I was like, hmm, not where I thought life was going to take me. And of course, I was in eighth grade. I had plenty of time. But at the time, that's actually hysterical that it was. I thought this was like, because, you know, in life, there's a huge difference between eighth grade and 11th grade. Not really. That's just a few years. Mm -hmm. But wow. So that was in eighth grade where you were like, okay, maybe this is, maybe that's not for me. Yep, exactly. So how about, I don't know, say it's senior year of high school. You're now, Maybe you already have or you're applying to to college. And you already mentioned where you went, but remind me again, where did you go for college? Sure. I went to Marquette University. Okay. And so for you, was it for like a foregone conclusion? I want to stay somewhat local or what was that process like for you? Yeah. So I... I'm the oldest child of, I have two younger brothers, but then even in sort of my larger family, I'm like the oldest of my cousins on my dad's side and the second oldest on my mom's side. And I hadn't had a family member yet kind of go out of state. So I was a little bit apprehensive about that. I did look at schools in Minnesota and in Illinois, but I knew that I wanted to like stay in the Midwest, because family was important to me, I had younger siblings who I wanted to kind of be around for for their um, high school career. So I settled on Marquette because that's where my dad went. He had a really good experience there. And I just kind of, what people tell you, you just kind of like figure out where your home is supposed to be. And it just felt like a good fit. Yeah. But I just think it's so important that mm-hmm. you share that because there's also this level of you don't really know what you don't know. And it's neither good nor bad to stay stay local or to go somewhere farther away. But I actually had a very similar experience, you know, going to or applying to colleges where, you know, where I where I was from, which is basically where you were from. Mm-hmm. You would you'd apply to the University of Wisconsin Madison. You'd apply at Minnesota because there was reciprocity there. I'm assuming that's still the case, not sure. And I didn't know much about many other schools. I mean, I'd see the sweatshirts people wore. <laughs> you know, right. and I had some family in Atlanta, so I was aware of Emory. I decided I really wanted to go there. Don't know why. Was, don't know what that was based on. <laughs> Got a couple fee waivers. Happened to apply to one at the American University, which is in DC. Happens to be where I went, but I, I by no means had this kind of like super methodical, no stone unturned. I'm looking at all the colleges there. It's kind of like okay, well, these are nearby. Tuition's reasonable at certain places, and my and this is where my family is. And I just think so many people have a similar process, but we don't always talk about it, particularly when we're farther along in our careers and you kind of know more people potentially from more places. So I don't know. I just appreciate you you reflecting on that because I think that's the experience a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. So you go to Marquette. What's your What's your major? Yep. So um, kind of once I figured out that I couldn't be a nurse like my mom and my dad's in finance. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll apply to the business school. His job seemed pretty cool too. So I double majored in finance and business economics, which is a major that Marquette has, I think is a little bit unique. And it's like the study of like applied economics, essentially. And I loved that. So it was a great experience. Now at this point, does that make you think maybe something in the business world is what I want to do? Or did you focus on those things knowing that still law school may be in the future? Yeah, I mostly focused on those things thinking law school was still in the future. One thing that my parents did kind of advise me on, which I think was probably good advice, was try to pick a major that just in case you decide you don't want to go to law school at the end of it, you would still have some good job opportunities and sort of like an easy 
path to find another career. So I did finance and business econ, knowing that I would more likely than not be going to law school, but just in case I would have, you know, another job prospect. Yeah, lined up. that's actually really solid advice. I kind of wish I'd ha- I'd gotten that advice. I, it turned out okay for me, but a lot of these podcasts is me making fun of the fact that I'm basically a pre, I was pre-law. So okay. I was like a philosophy and a law and society major, whatever that does. And for, I don't know, law students or even people who are still in college, you get to listen within, and this I'm, this is going to tie in, I think, to your practice area a little bit once we get there. Mm-hmm. But when you present me with, say, some sort of like ledger or something very numbers-based, I really didn't have a good frame of reference for reading that. And I think there maybe were some sort of 101 sort of classes offered in law school to help because knowing that as lawyers, we often have to have that knowledge. But still, good. That was great advice from your parents, Kelsey. (laughs) I don't know if they just really uh, didn't want me to go to law school. So they were trying to push the business thing, but it really worked out. So thanks. They're like, like, you know, but if you change your mind, it'll be this thing. So you do do that in in college. And and then what is it? It sounds like you applied straight to law school, but still take me through it. Sure. Yeah, I did. And I did. So I've always been like very, very logical. I mean, even when I was like getting married, my parents like laughed at me. They're like, you're so practical and like you don't get wrapped up in emotion and the romance of it. And it was the same way for me for law school. Before I even applied, my dad was able to connect me with like a couple of his clients or a couple of his friends who had gone to law school. And I sat down and had like hour long conversations with all of them. Like, what's law school like? What's your job like? To like really make sure it was something that I wanted to do. And I decided that it absolutely was, I would say in my junior year of college. So took the LSAT, applied, got in at the University of Madison. Again, not a very exciting story about how I ended up there, but the tuition was um, reasonable. It's a great school. So it it just kind of made sense to me to go there, knowing that I wanted to come back to Wisconsin too. In-state tuition at the University of Wisconsin is a great, great thing. And you should not disparage any part of your journey for taking advantage of that. Yeah, I am definitely was grateful once, you know, I saw the difference in what my loans could have been. I'll say that. Yes, as um, somebody who went out of state, and granted, some people will think University of Michigan's a public school, quote unquote, a state school, but there, even for those in state, there's not a major break on that cost. I think a lot of us look back and we're like, wow, there may be some other decisions I could have made to save myself a little <laughs> bit of money. But no, I hear you. So you go straight from, from college to law school. So take me back. You start in law school. What is that? What's that like for you? Yeah, I actually, uh, just reflecting this, I kind of had forgotten about this and maybe zeroed it out of my brain. But first year of law school was actually really hard for me. You know, I'd been in all of these business classes where, unlike your experience, everything was looking at a spreadsheet. And then to be thrown into law school, which is very much reading and writing, I'd always been a strong writer, but just not in the same way that law school required it. And so it was really stressful, actually. And I had a couple of moments where I was like, did I make a mistake? Like, am I cut out for this? But my parents really, you know, encouraged me again, bless them. I'm so glad that I had them, um, that you need to at least finish the first year. You need to get through the full first year. And then if you're still unsure, we can talk about it then. But you should really at least give the full year ago. And I'm so glad that I did because first semester was tough, but I got the hang of it. It was just new. And then second semester was, I don't want to say easy. I don't think anyone thinks law school is easy, but it went much smoother, I would say, than the first semester did. 
That's a really good point, though, that you made that I have not thought about actually on any of these episodes yet, that it's almost like a different side of your, of your brain that mm-hmm. you're using. And so to come in, because that, oh, it's so it's it's a bit cliche, but all of us have gone through it, where you're going into something where there's readings for the first day of class, likely. There's a ton of reading here. Just read, 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 read. And actually, and then all your grade is one thing. And we're not working together. There's no projects. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I just felt, you know, it's Socratic method and you hear other people talking in class who perhaps, you know, maybe were like philosophy majors and the ideas that they're sharing. I'm, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just used to typing in Excel formulas. I cannot do this, but. I love that. I feel vindicated. That is where us philosophy majors shined. We shined that first week of law school. (laughs) You did. You scared us all. (laughs) But to this day, you present us with an Excel spreadsheet and we're like taking out our calculator to add up columns <laughs> because we don't know how to do anything. The formula, yeah. So what did you what did you do to adjust? I mean, was it just kind of a matter of, I, I hear the family support, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming there's also this just like, I had to buckle down and just use that other half of my brain essentially that I wasn't using as much when I was all numbers focused. I did. Yeah. I wouldn't say that I had the most fun first semester because I spent a lot of time in the library, a lot of time going to professor office hours, which was really helpful. And so I I wish I could give someone, you know, better advice other than just you really just had to buckle down. I had to read things probably more times than maybe some other people did who are used to doing that more heavy reading all the time. But I eventually figured it out and figured out how to read dense text and think about it. Well, I do want to ask you a bit about the office hours because I say this every episode, but we're getting more law students listening. And I have this feeling that this podcast, in addition to it being a great way for Foley lawyers to meet Foley lawyers, could really be just clutch for law school law students, right? If you mm-hmm. listen to enough and you hear real lawyers talk about what they did. But that office hours thing is, I think, really important. And can be overlooked also because I think it can be intimidating to go. So I don't know if you could just say a few more words about about what those what that was like, and then and maybe even what you would ask them when you when you went. Yeah, in some ways, I almost like felt guilty because like a lot of the things that we would discuss during office hours ended up on like the final written exam, and I would feel like I had such a leg up. Like other classmates would be like, I did not see that coming, and I'm like. Ooh, like I guess I did because I went to office hours. So I would just go in. Usually, if I'm remembering correctly, I tried to outline, which I know everyone talks about outlining in law school, um, but I really tried to do that as I went along. And I would bring in my outline to the office hours and be like, I don't understand how this case fits in, or I don't understand how this concept fits into sort of the larger sort of scope of the class. And then professors have a way of kind of going on a tangent about things that they find really important. And that's where you really want to listen because whatever they find important is probably what's on the exam. So if they kind of would blow off my original question and go on a tangent, I would just take really good notes because I'd be like, okay, well, clearly this is something they want us to remember. That is top of mind for them. I know. And you're like, it almost feels like I have an unfair advantage, but everyone else was free to go to office hours right. as well. Right. Yeah, that is so important. And I I really give that advice to law students. And there's some professors who, you know, they'll say they have office hours, but, you know, they're just not welcoming personalities. They're more so there to, to write or be published. There's some who will make you feel great for coming in. But my thing is, either way, you're investing a lot of money and time. 
and you should go see. I mean, some will be like, yeah, here's an exam I gave out, you know, two years ago, take a look at it. And that's, that's invaluable when your grade is predicated on one, you know, generally one big, big test. So I hope the law students are listening and I won't go too far down this path, but I think it also can just be hard for certain people who maybe it feels like it makes them uncomfortable essentially to be one-on-one with a, Mm -hmm. with a law professor when normally they're in a room of 40 other people or maybe even a hundred other people. But I, I I have to say, I'm just like, you got to get over it. 100% agree. I think like even as uncomfortable as you might feel like the payoff is so worth it. And you know, you'll probably be meeting one-on-one if you want to be a lawyer with people the rest of your life. So what a great time to just practice getting over that fear too. Start now. Exactly. All right. Is there anything before we get to the whole, how did you connect with Foley? Anything else worth highlighting about law school? Actually, I should ask, did you have any sense of what you wanted to practice when you were in law school? Yeah. So I think, I don't know if it was because I was actually super interested or I just felt that I'd spent so much of my, you know, college career focusing on like finance and business law that I felt like I wanted to use that in some way. So I really thought probably something in tax. I took like as many tax classes as I could and the teacher would be like, don't be afraid of the numbers. And I was like, this is my time to shine. I'm not afraid of the numbers. That goes back to the philosophy major sits down. (laughs) Right, right. I was was like, this is my moment. Um, I've waited, you know, three years for this. So I thought something in tax, but I didn't have like a very clear vision of what I wanted to do. All right. So take me to what I'm assuming is maybe on-campus interviewing, but how does Foley come on the scene? How are you connected with the firm? It is. And speaking of awkward um, conversations, if you think that professor office hours are awkward, OCI is incredibly awkward. And that's not to say that people from the firms don't try to make you feel welcome because they do. But what a weird situation to just have back-to-back interviews all day and you're, you know, ours were in the business school. It was just very weird. So I go to- grueling. It's grueling too, because it could be like, here's eight or 10 interviews, 20 minutes each, back to back to back. It's just, it, it can be a lot. It is. It definitely is. So I, I went through that process. And at the same time, I'm so grateful that they have it because then you don't have to travel to all of those firms to get like, you know, sort of your initial feelers out there. So I knew that probably unsurprising at this point that I wanted to stay in the Midwest after school. I was then um, dating my now husband and he was already established in the Milwaukee area. So I, I knew that we kind of wanted to stay here. So I was really targeted at Milwaukee firms and a couple of Chicago firms. So did the initial on-campus interview with Foley as well as a number of other firms. And it honestly... For me, this sounds like so cheesy, but it was a little bit of like love at first sight with Foley. My interview with them was so easy, so smooth. It was just like having like a great conversation. This is the place for it. Any Foley propaganda, like this is the place for the cheesy, the cliche. (laughs) And I do joke, people may think I've just like sent you a script beforehand, like say these things, but no. No, I promise you didn't. I... (laughs) I always feel like weird saying that, but I just had this like feeling like I really feel like I could be really happy there. And nothing felt forced. We actually talked about the book um, Gone Girl, I remember, for like a good solid five minutes. It was just a great conversation. 
Which is a great book and a surprisingly solid film, by the way. Exactly. (laughs) You know what? Before we talk even more about Foley, I just want to say for the law students listening right now who are gearing up for a very different sort of OCI due to the pandemic with it being virtual and it's pushed back by a number of months. In many ways, the same rules apply. Also, spoiler alert, I think OCI is going to be via video conference even when things go back to normal, because it's just really efficient. It is. But that knowing that people will sort of want to talk about what's top of mind for them, and you may connect over subjects you did not expect, and also not to totally co-opt the podcast with you, Kelsey, but I will just say, lawyers are not the best at interviewing. We are very nice, but we're also very busy people who likely walked in without, you know, thinking of you know, a bunch of hard hitting questions. Mm-hmm. And so for you, when you did OCI and for many still, it's a lot of answering that question. So tell me about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So for the law students, practice that one. You can record it in Skype or Teams or Zoom and play it back. That's your leg up this time around. <laughs> See if you like the answer. But anyway, okay. So you connect, you I'm assuming you have to get a you get a call back and then it's I'm going to be a summer associate at Foley. Yep. Got a call back. Did the sort of at the firm interview. And then they offered me um, a spot to be a summer associate. And I like accepted immediately. I was so excited. And uh, yeah, so came and did the summer after my second year of law school at Foley in the Milwaukee office. And it was a little intimidating at first. I will just like warn everybody that if you're feeling that way, it's totally normal. And it was nothing that Foley did. It just, for me, this was like my first real, real job. Like I had worked, you know, on campus jobs through college to make a little extra money. But from going straight through, I never really worked in like a real corporate environment before. So it was a little bit scary, but it was still a great experience. I'm so glad you mentioned that too, because after you've been practicing for a while or out of school for a while, I think it's easy to forget. Mm-hmm. That that feeling of even walking into these, you know, giant office buildings and, you know, taking the elevator to like, I don't know, the 30th floor or whatever it is, it just can feel odd when you're not in that environment. And it can add to that, like you said, that layer of it, it can just feel intimidating. You know, what what have I signed up for? What is this like? I don't, I don't quite know this world. Exactly. So how was it as a summer? Did you focus on uh, tax or transactional assignments? Did you, did you try some litigation or what, what did you do as a summer? Yeah. So as a summer associate at Foley, they really kind of encourage you, unless you're IP, which is kind of a whole different ballgame, to try both business law and litigation. So I did one litigation project, really didn't like it. I kind of knew that about myself. I'm not someone who gets like really excited about going to court or kind of hardball negotiating. I kind of wanted to be more on the transactional side. So then I did, you know, Foley has so many different business law practice groups. I kind of tried them all. And I will say people, you know, kind of ask, oh, did you always know that you wanted to do employee benefits? Uh, No, I didn't even know that was like a type of law that existed. I didn't even know what ERISA was when I started. I just tried a bunch of groups and I just really, really liked the people in the employee benefits group. I just kind of felt like it was a good fit personality wise, which maybe sounds like kind of a weird thing to base your practice area on. But I knew that I'd be working with these people every day. And for me, the people do make a really big difference. 
Yep. I'm just, you see me nodding my head profusely. It's, it's tough. I think everybody in an ideal world, you would love who you work with and you would love your practice area. But I also think in terms of the day to day, often the people can make up for if you're kind of even tepid about Mm -hmm. your your practice area. Whereas if you are passionate about the subject matter, but just don't like who you're doing it with, uh, that is tough. So you wrap up your summer, you finish, you finish law school, you join the firm. And you join within the employee benefits practice group. Yep. So this is where you get to explain what your practice area is. (laughs) What exactly do you do? Okay. Well, everyone, uh, take a deep breath here. No, just kidding. So in the employee benefits group, we kind of have two aspects. So number one, we assist the transactions group on deals because ERISA is very complicated. Employee benefits law is very complicated. And they're all, and we're going to, we're going to break it down more. ERISA income, no earned, I don't know, actually what's ERISA stand for? Oh, now you're, now you're, it's the, do we need to Google it? It's like something retirement income security act. Yeah. But basically, because I find this super complicated, Mm -hmm. and I was a labor and employment lawyer for a minute, but I wouldn't touch this side of the world. You get an ERISA person for ERISA. But essentially, it's law that governs, it's like retirement and health plans. Yeah. So let me, I'll break it down even further. So in the employee benefits world, there's sort of three pieces executive compensation, which I actually do a lot of. And that's not so much based on ERISA law. It's mostly just based on the tax code. Then there's um, retirement plan issues. So that would be like 401ks. And for any companies that still have pension plans left, that's actually where a lot of the complicated law comes in, is there. And then also kind of medical and health plans that employers are providing to their employees. So we in the employee benefits group at Foley will advise companies on sort of all three aspects. ERISA definitely comes in on the retirement and the medical plan side. And by the way, I did Google it because we are, I don't practice, but I am still licensed and Mm -hmm. I want to redeem myself a little bit. The Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. There you go. And we both knew that. We just put ourselves on the spot. And so we got a little nervous, but now everybody knows. (laughs) But no, thank you for, so I thank you for that explanation. But I do find, and I could be wrong because, you know, you live in the practice area. I do think ERISA and employee benefits and even executive comp are some of those practice areas that people don't necessarily know as much about. And like you said, when you were a law student, you'd likely never heard of it before. Mm-hmm. So I can't help but maybe put you on the spot, but also get you to really talk about, you know, what it what you do and what you work on, because it's not every day that that a, a law student in particular get to hear from ERISA lawyers. But okay, but but go on. So what does that that mean for you in terms of the day to day? What kind of stuff do you work on? Sure. And there's a couple of things that I really like about um, my practice. Number one, because we're helping to advise our clients on how to make sure their 401k plan is compliant or how to fix an issue when it's not. Day to day, a lot of the people that we work with are actually HR professionals, not other lawyers, which I think is kind of fun because you you get to kind of explain the law in a very basic way and actually be like very, very helpful to someone who doesn't spend, you know, eight or nine hours a day like in the code or in ERISA. Um, So I really, really like that about my job. And I also just think HR people tend to be really nice and fun. So not that lawyers aren't, but so that's a nice part of the job. Well, and I'm going to ask you something that may be 
too repetitive, but just to make sure it's clear sort of what you work on, but you said you'll work on the benefits part of say, say deals. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to say some words and hopefully you'll pick this up and help me. But essentially, you know, a company is buying another company and there's employees involved and there's various things they need to comply with. So whether it be sort of your day-to-day or what your group would focus on. So what, so how did, how does that, how do you come in? How does your group come into that? Sure. So when one company is buying another, just in general, they'll want to do what in lawyer talk we call due diligence on the company and look to make sure like what they're buying is like really worth um, what they plan to pay for it. One place that a lot of big liabilities in the forms of potentially fines, fees, or just unfunded obligations where the company hasn't been setting aside enough money to pay out Um, comes from retirement plans and welfare plans. And that's because there's a lot of super technical requirements for how you have to run a qualified retirement plan. Essentially, you know, the government's giving you a tax break a lot of the times to run these plans. And so in order to do so, they want you to follow like all of these really strict requirements. And companies all the time screw them up. And so what Mm -hmm. our job is, is to go through and look at was there a screw up? How big was it? Can we fix it before we buy the company or our client buys the company? Or if not, like what's our potential exposure down the road? Exactly. So that's what we'll, we'll do. And honestly, like a lot of the rules in our area too, aren't a hundred percent clear. So you'll kind of be going back and forth with opposing counsel. Like we think this is a problem and they'll be like, we don't think it's a problem because of this. So you're really, really digging into the rules and trying to even go back in like legislative history. Like what do we think the intent was? So it is, it's very nerdy, but at the same time, very practical in that these are things that the company actually does need to worry about and figure Mm -hmm. out. I love that. And I really appreciate you giving the explanation. I was tempted to say, yep, totally knew that, Kelsey. I appreciate you for explaining it to the listeners, even though I totally knew everything you just said. Um, but you and you also touched on executive comp. And I think you said you do a fair amount, fair amount of that. So what exactly is executive comp work like? Sure. And that was when I came in as a summer associate, actually, I was like, this is the part of employee benefits that I I really, really liked and really got really excited about. We work with companies to help put in place like their executive employment agreements. So there's sometimes fun negotiating going on there. We are negotiating with the executive or helping the company negotiate a good deal when they're hiring a new CEO or CFO. And then also their equity compensation, you know, stock options are really hot for startups. They're also, you know, used even in more mature companies. But again, there's a lot of legal requirements that you have to meet in order to give that to somebody as compensation that probably the average person doesn't know about. So it'll be walking clients through how to meet those requirements and also just what makes the most sense for them business-wise. There's often like more than one way sort of to skin the cat and it's helping them understand what probably makes the most sense for them to get their objectives met, but also make it, you know, efficient and effective. So I find it really interesting too, because the former litigator in me, former employment lawyer in me, this is the stuff that I would not touch. Mm. When I was a dedicated employment lawyer, you would find the person who was an expert in ERISA or an executive comp. 
And so I can generally speak to sort of what an area is, but I just, I, don't, I just personally find it fascinating because I never touched this sort of work, even though it was sort of within the same universe. Oh, I, um, I get that. Yeah. Cause yeah. your stuff is not in my universe. I'm like, Oh, we need to send that to a labor and employment person. <laughs> exactly. The HR person on the phone's like, so we got an OFCCP complaint the mm-hmm. other day or, and you're like, e- or the EEOC complaint. And you're like, Oh, let me call my colleague. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I also, so while I have you, I would love to have you just share a little bit about life as an associate, you mentioned you're in, I think your fifth or sixth year at Foley. How was it learning your practice area? Because you're hitting, you're hitting what I feel like is sort of the sweet spot of being an associate where you've been around long enough, where you know what's going on, but it takes some time to get there. And I don't know if there's anything you could share about yeah. that. Oh yeah, you bet. And I say this not to like scare anybody, but more so I wish that more people would have talked about this when I was associate to sort of normalize the feeling. And I think I would have felt a lot better had someone else, you know, told me this in that your first and second year, especially in a technical area like ERISA or like tax, you know nothing. And everyone around you is speaking in all of these abbreviations that you're just Googling nonstop. You don't know what they're talking about. Everyone seems so knowledgeable. And I definitely felt for at least the first two years, like I'm never going to get there. I'm not smart enough. I made a huge mistake. And people were very supportive, like, don't worry about it. You'll get there. But I I just would have really liked to have had somebody else to say to me, I feel the exact same way. I feel like a, you know, idiot from time to time too. Like, it's okay. It's totally normal. So I will just say that to you to anyone who is listening and is kind of in that spot. Just it's normal and it will get better. Um, it's easy for partners to say that and for you to kind of blow that off. But hopefully hearing it from a, another associate, it really does get better. So the first two years were tough because I just, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I would get work and I would do the best that I could. And then you'd get the project back with red pen all over it. But somewhere it just definitely clicks. You start getting repeat work where you've seen the same, you know, issues before and you kind of remember what to do. And so you're right. It's finally starting, I would say, to get a little bit fun where I'm like, oh, I know what I'm doing. And like, oh, I can start to think creatively about things. And I'm getting over that hump of just trying to figure out the basics. As you saw me again, just nodding, nodding, nodding as you, as you spoke. And I, and this goes back once again to sounding a little cliche, but I truly think this is why being a lawyer, it's, it's a practice and it keeps growing and changing. But absolutely those first couple of years, I often say it, the learning curve goes straight up and then eventually it levels off a bit. But knowing that, and also as a, you know, associate or particularly when you're a very junior lawyer, being sort of compassionate for the partners who um, they truly don't remember not knowing <laughs> their their area in the way that you currently don't know it, and they don't they so they don't mean to seem a certain way. <laughs> they just forgot that they at one point did not know you know whatever it is they're asking you to do. Oh, totally, and they definitely almost always underestimate how long something will take you to do because to them it's like second nature and they forget what it's like to have to like look everything up. Yep. What are, and if you don't mind me asking, mm-hmm. what are some of the resources that you use to navigate that? So I, I often will recommend find that, you know, person who's two, three years ahead of you, run it, run it by that. But wh- how did you close the gap? If you have any just kind of like quick advice on that? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think maybe that was one of the places where my practice experience also was unique in that I came in and I was like the only associate. And so I think that that felt a little bit isolating too, 
just because I'm looking around at all these people who are so smart and I hadn't, I didn't have that like third year associate to sort of look up to. That being said, I think it was also a blessing looking back because I got really close to the partners in my group really fast because I just had no choice. And so I, with one of the partners that I worked with, we would like set up time like once a week where it would be like, I just have like all of these random questions that I need to ask somebody. I will hold them all until like Friday. And then like, I just need you to like go over them with me. So that was helpful. And that just, I think reframing it too, and that you're working with the partners, they need you. They want your help. They need you to help them do their work. And so reframing it in that way and that however they can help you become better and more efficient ultimately helps them. Help and them. that helped me feel a little bit less guilty about like, I'm not wasting their time or, you know, taking up too much of their time. And not to go too far into fully propaganda mode again, but I think that's also something that is great about the culture of the firm. And I mean, you know, I'm certain there may be exceptions, but generally I think most of our partners and senior count or senior associates and senior counsel are really accessible and expect you to bring them then questions. So my fingers are crossed that that has been your experience. And you had a lot of people willing to sit down and, you know, explain things to you. Definitely. And I think that you just have to ask. I mean, with with anything really at a law firm, everyone's really, really busy. And so no one's, you know, a lot of the time they're not going to stop by and be like, hi, like, can I give you like an hour long like briefing on like this thing? But if you go and ask, they 100% will. So I think just advocating for yourself a little bit in that way and making the ask, I would say like 99 times out of 100, um, people have been so willing to sit down and even ask what I felt like was perhaps a dumb question. But I'm glad I asked them because now I know and um, I can pass that along to the people coming up in our group um, below me. And I have to say that is so wise that you set up the, the time each week to ask your questions. And back to what you said, the advocating for yourself. And even though there is that tremendous adjustment, you've graduated from law school, you are a professional now mm -hmm. and doing whatever you need to do because your number one thing, and I say this law since your number one thing is training. It is getting some skills. That is your North Star. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I would say that that is something to just to remember to focus on, I think it's really easy sometimes to like jump into like law firm life. And especially amongst older associates, I think people talk about like the billable hour, like so much where you kind of feel like you have to live and die by that billable hour, which yes, you know, it's important as an associate, but I still think it's more important to learn and to like figure out what you're doing because that's going to pay dividends down the road instead of just being so focused on just hitting an arbitrary hour requirement. And so even now, um, you know, you asked about other resources. I, in my like executive comp world, I have this book that just talks about one specific code section, code section 409A, which is all about sort of deferred compensation arrangements when I promise to pay you money in the future. And there's an entire textbook that I'm not kidding you is like over a thousand pages just on that one code section. And I'm still reading it like on my own time. And it's so nerdy. But at the same time, I know that like this is what's going to make me a good lawyer in the future. And this is what's going to make me able to like bring in clients someday when I hopefully, you know, make partner here. Absolutely. And it also is a good indication of professional alignment, which is a, a broader subject, but something I'm passionate about is hopefully there's aspects of your practice that you want to pursue 
on your off time just because you're fascinated by it because it's because it's interesting and yes that putting that extra time will make you a better lawyer and you know lead to certain material gains but also hopefully it's just curiosity and this is actually something sorry i'm going like full circle here but when i had our ceo jay rothman on he talked about passion and curiosity so much and so i think some people make back to the you know, idea that all oh, that's so cliche but that is truly what separates um you know phenomenal attorneys from people that are kind of ho-hum as they're truly curious and truly passionate so as nerdy as that may sound kelsey i think you're fitting the criteria jay talked about <laughs> yeah I, I love that word curiosity because i do think that too i think that that's what makes life as a lawyer interesting is you could probably have an okay career just kind of humming along like you said but I do think one of the best parts about being a lawyer is that you are learning all the time if you take the opportunity to do so. There is never a day where I'm like, oh, I've done all of this before. It's always new. And I think that that's one of the best parts to take advantage of. You know, and I think you may have already done it already, but let me go ahead and ask the question as we wrap up here. Do you have any advice or should I say other advice to somebody looking at a legal path, you know, whether that be a law student or somebody trying to figure out if the law is for me? What, what, what do you say to those folks? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would say that number one, and I feel like this is the advice that I, I wish I would have gotten perhaps too when I was in law school is don't let your other passions fall by the wayside. Because number one, I think that that can help kind of guide you as you're, you know, looking at jobs and like what type of law is going to really motivate you, become your passion. But number two, I think that part of what is cool about working at Foley is that people are great lawyers, but they're also just super interesting people. And that's what makes it also satisfying. And I think that there's sometimes this mentality of, well, once I, you know, get a job at a firm, then I'll focus on other areas of my life that's interesting. But then you get to the firm and then it's like, well, once I make senior counsel, then I'll have more time for those things. And I think, you know, the law can be demanding, but as much as possible, also try and pursue things outside of it that you're passionate about. I think you'll be surprised like how those like at some point will sort of collide. Um, so that would be number one is, oh gosh, you know, but Kelsey, I have to ask, what are your passions outside? What's something you pursue? I love, love to cook. And so I think in my first year, I really let that go. My husband did more of the cooking. I just didn't have the energy to do it anymore. But I would say quickly, someone else at the firm actually encouraged me. You got to find something, you know, outside of work that you love. And so I've gotten back into it and it has just been like a game changer. So now Anytime I'm able to, I come home from work and I like cook for my husband and I, and you know, we share recipes at work. And I, I just think it's like something that's kind of fun. That's awesome. And I interrupted you. I think there may have been one other thing you were going to share. Oh, no, that's okay. And then just um, my second advice that I would have to law students is just don't be discouraged. Like I said, there were so many moments I feel like in my journey from college to law school, even to firm life, where I felt like it would have been very easy to quit. But I just think that, you know, the practice of law is so fulfilling, especially to people that are intellectually curious, that it's so worth it to push through. You are smart enough. Everyone felt the way that you're probably feeling at some point, and it, it definitely will get better. And it's so, so worth it. Thank you so much, Kelsey. That is fantastic advice. I especially hope the students gearing up for OCI listen to that. And with that, my final, final question, as always, is if somebody has questions or comments, wants to reach out to you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and shoot you an email? Absolutely. Yep. My email is on Foley's website. Happy to answer questions. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kelsey. It's great talking to you. Thanks. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 